Book Four, Chapter One of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lou Wallace, Book Four, Chapter One. Here is an excerpt from Schiller's play Don Carlos, Act Four, Scene Fifteen. Alva. Should the monarch prove unjust, and, at this time, Queen, then I must wait for justice until it come, and they are happiest far whose consciences may calmly wait their right. CHAPTER One. The month to which we now come is July, the year that of our Lord twenty-nine, and the place Antioch, then Queen of the East, and next to Rome the strongest, if not the most populous, city in the world. There is an opinion that the extravagance and dissoluteness of the age had their origin in Rome, and spread thence throughout the empire, that the great cities but reflected the manners of their mistress on the Tiber. This may be doubted. The reaction of the conquest would seem to have been upon the morals of the conqueror. In Greece she found a spring of corruption— so also in Egypt, and the student, having exhausted the subject, will close the books assured that the flow of the demoralizing river was from the east westwardly, and that this very city of Antioch, one of the oldest seats of Assyrian power and splendor, was a principal source of the deadly stream. A transport galley entered the mouth of the river Orontes from the blue waters of the sea. It was in the forenoon. The heat was great, yet all on board who could avail themselves of the privilege were on deck, Ben-Hur among others. The five years had brought the young Jew to perfect manhood. Though the robe of white linen in which he was attired somewhat masked his form, his appearance was unusually attractive. For an hour and more he had occupied a seat in the shade of the sail, and in that time several fellow-passengers of his own nationality had tried to engage him in conversation, but without avail. His replies to their questions had been brief, though gravely courteous, and in the Latin tongue. The purity of his speech, his cultivated manners, his reticence, served to stimulate their curiosity the more. Such as observed him closely were struck by an incongruity between his demeanour, which had the ease and grace of a patrician, and certain points of his person. Thus his arms were disproportionately long, and when, to steady himself against the motion of the vessel, he took hold of anything nearby, the size of his hands and their evident power compelled remark. So the wonder who and what he was mixed continually with a wish to know the particulars of his life. In other words, his air cannot be better described than as a notice. This man has a story to tell. The galley in coming, had stopped at one of the ports of Cyprus, and picked up a Hebrew of most respectable appearance, quiet, reserved, paternal. Ben-Hur ventured to ask him some questions. The replies won his confidence, and resulted finally in an extended conversation. It chanced also that as the galley from Cyprus entered the receiving bay of the Orontes, Two other vessels, which had been sighted out in the sea, met it, and passed into the river at the same time. And as they did so, both the strangers threw out small flags of brightest yellow. There was much conjecture as to the meaning of the signals. 
At length a passenger addressed himself to the respectable Hebrew for information upon the subject. "'Yes, I know the meaning of the flags,' he replied. "'They do not signify nationality. They are merely marks of ownership.' "'Has the owner many ships?' "'He has.' "'You know him?' "'I have dealt with him.' The passengers looked at the speaker as if requesting him to go on. Ben-Hur listened with interest. "'He lives in Antioch,' the Hebrew continued, in his quiet way. "'That he is vastly rich has brought him into notice, and the talk about him is not always kind. There used to be in Jerusalem a prince of very ancient family named Hur.' Judah strove to be composed, yet his heart beat quicker. "'The prince was a merchant, with a genius for business.' He set on foot many enterprises, some reaching far east, others west. In the great cities he had branch-houses. The one in Antioch was in charge of a man said by some to have been a family servant called Simonides, Greek in name, yet an Israelite. The master was drowned at sea. His business, however, went on, and was scarcely less prosperous. After a while misfortune overtook the family. The prince's only son, nearly grown, tried to kill the procurator gratis in one of the streets of Jerusalem. He failed by a narrow chance, and has not since been heard of. In fact, the Romans' rage took in the whole house. Not one of the name was left alive. Their palace was sealed up, and is now a rookery for pigeons. The estate was confiscated. Everything that could be traced to the ownership of the hers was confiscated. The procurator cured his hurt with a golden salve. The passengers laughed. "'You mean he kept the property?' said one of them. "'They say so,' the Hebrew replied. "'I am only telling a story as I received it. And, to go on, Simonides, who had been the prince's agent here in Antioch, opened trade in a short time on his own account— and in a space incredibly brief became the master-merchant of the city. In imitation of his master, he sent caravans to India, and on the sea at present he has galleys enough to make a royal fleet. They say nothing goes amiss with him. His camels do not die, except of old age. His ships never founder. If he throw a chip into the river it will come back to him gold." How long has he been going on thus? Not ten years. He must have had a good start. Yes, they say the procurator took only the prince's property ready at hand, his horses, cattle, houses, land, vessels, goods. The money could not be found, though there must have been some vast sums of it. What became of it has been an unsolved mystery." "'Not to me,' said a passenger, with a sneer. "'I understand you,' the Hebrew answered. "'Others have had your idea. That it furnished old Simonides his start is a common belief. The procurator is of that opinion, or he has been, for twice in five years he has caught the merchant and put him to torture.' Judah gripped the rope he was holding with crushing force. It is said, the narrator continued, that there is not a sound bone in the man's body. 
The last time I saw him he sat in a chair, a shapeless cripple, propped against cushions. "'So tortured!' exclaimed several listeners in a breath. "'Disease could not have produced such a deformity. Still the suffering made no impression upon him. All he had was his lawfully, and he was making lawful use of it. That was the most they wrung from him. Now, however, he is past persecution. He has a license to trade, signed by Tiberius himself. He paid roundly for it, I warrant. These ships are his, the Hebrew continued, passing the remark. It is a custom among his sailors to salute each other upon meeting by throwing out yellow flags, sight of which is as much as to say, We have had a fortunate voyage. The story ended there. When the transport was fairly in the channel of the river, Judah spoke to the Hebrew. "'What was the name of the merchant's master?' "'Ben-Hur, Prince of Jerusalem.' "'What became of the prince's family?' "'The boy was sent to the galleys. I may say he is dead. One year is the ordinary limit of life under that sentence.' The widow and daughter have not been heard of. Those who know what became of them will not speak. They died, doubtless, in the cells of one of the castles which spot the waysides of Judea. Judah walked to the pilot's quarter. So absorbed was he in thought that he scarcely noticed the shores of the river, which from sea to city were surpassingly beautiful with orchards of all the Syrian fruits and vines, clustered about villas rich as those of Neapolis. No more did he observe the vessels passing in an endless fleet, nor hear the singing and shouting of the sailors, some in labour, some in merriment. The sky was full of sunlight, lying in hazy warmth upon the land and the water. Nowhere except over his life was there a shadow. Once only he awoke to a momentary interest, and that was when someone pointed out the grove of Daphne, discernible from a bend in the river. End of chapter.